Can we totally dethrone its power from our lives so that all of our work is devoted to God and God's ways? As Christians, I don't think you can blame it on some evil Hollywood agenda. I think we've abandoned the playing field. The spirit of David and the cracks of the walls and the schemes that we are all running. Is you've got to make sure that your identity is solidly rooted in who you are in Christ and not in having money. If we were to have a business, what would we do with the money? You can only sleep in one bed. Woke up terrified in the middle of the night. We stole my whole house, was shaken. We have been put here on earth to create, not to mimic what might have happened historically. For me, as I pitch, I'm not looking just for the yes, I'm looking for my partners. But I tried Where my heart is most encouraged as a pastor is when I see generosity as the overflow of someone's intimacy with Jesus. And there's a lot of people who want to use their influence to change the world. So how do you actually do it? Investing can be complicated, but it doesn't need to be a burden. Stewardship of the resources that God has entrusted us with is full of responsibility, analysis, and yet it is also a unique opportunity for us all to come to know God's love for us more and His purposes in the world as we seek His wisdom. Here is a place to find other investors who seek the same answers you do and share their stories of seeking to know the best investor and giver of all time. Come for the podcast, stay for the community. Welcome to Faith Driven Investing. Welcome back, everyone, to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. Michael Eisenberg is a general partner at Aleph, an equal partnership and early stage venture capital fund that has invested in more than 50 companies and has $850 million under management. Prior to Aleph, Michael was a general partner at Benchmark Capital, where he continues as the partner responsible for its Israeli portfolio. Michael is focused on internet and software-enabled service investments since 1995. He's invested in and served on the boards of some of Israel's leading companies and startups, such as Wix, Shopping.com, and Lemonade. Michael's also an avid writer. Since 2006, he's been writing the blog Six Kids and a Full-Time Job on topics ranging from politics to technology, Judaism, and macroeconomics. He's a frequent contributor to daily business newspapers and is the author of The Hummus Manifesto, the seminal piece on Israel's innovation scene. Michael has also published five books in Hebrew. Two of his books, The Vanishing Jew and The Tree of Life and Prosperity, have also been translated and adapted into English. We're excited to have Michael on the Faith Driven Investor Podcast to talk to him about how he balances investing, writing, and life as a husband and father of eight. Let's welcome Michael Eisenberg. Hey, everyone. All opinions expressed on this podcast, including the team and guests, are solely their opinions. Host and guests may maintain positions in the companies and securities discussed. And this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as specific investment advice for any individual or organization. Thanks for listening. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Investor Podcast. I'm here as always, or most of the time at least, with Luke. Luke, good morning. How's Nashville? Nashville is beautiful. It's a beautiful spring morning. Tulips are coming out. That's awesome. We're taking the show on the road today. We're going to 
the amazing, amazing, amazing country of Israel, and it pains me that I've only been there once. Most of our listeners probably will have been there. If you haven't, it's just amazing. It's great culture. The weather is great. The food is awesome. Scenery really great. And then to walk in the footsteps of all of our biblical heroes is just, it's amazing. It's otherworldly, almost literally. And our program today is taking us to Israel, to Michael Eisenberg, who's a crazy successful investor coming out benchmark, time on the Midas list, made lots and lots of great investments over the years. Maybe the most impressive thing that he's done is the fact that he has written a blog called Six Kids and a Full-Time Job, even though he has eight kids. So, you know, underselling, underpromising, over-delivering. I think that's what he does as an investor as well. He's got to um, make it more approachable. You know, eight is just completely unattainable for most individuals. Six makes it at least kind of within spitting distance. From that's the- right. You know, if it's eight, then they think it's a work of fiction. Six kids will bring people in. And then, you know, what Tommy says, he has eight. Michael, you do have eight kids, correct? I do have eight kids. Yeah. In fact, when our eighth was born and, you know, the blog didn't have a scalable name, one of my partners from Benchmark wrote, maybe you should rename it Eight is Enough. For those people old enough <laughs> yeah, to get the illusion, get, yeah. I'm a child of the 70s. That was a great show. I remember that. Me too. Very cool. So, Michael, thank you for joining the program. Thank you so much for having me, Henry Luke. Appreciate it. So give us, we'd like to do this with all of our guests, of course, but give us an autobiographical flyover. You haven't spent your entire life in Israel but you're doing some incredible things there. And do the autobiographical flavor. As we're doing this, I'll just tell our listeners why Luke and I are so fired up about having you on the program. We're talking about a guy who serves on the board of an organization in Israel called Yeshivat Haaretzion. It's a Bible study. He's fascinated by the Word of God and what it means for his life, but what it means also for his professional life. And the fact that we've gone this far along in faith-driven investor and having connected with Michael through our great friend Evan Bear a long time ago, I'm embarrassed that it's taken this long, but we're going to learn from Michael about what he's heard from God and how it informs his investing. Before we do that, give us a flyover. Who is Michael? Yes, as you hear from my accent, I'm not originally from Israel. I was born, bred, and raised in New York. I'm fond of saying on the island of Manhattan. I was born in Manhattan. I went to elementary and high school and college in Manhattan, but I took a detour after my first year of college and I went to study at that same Yeshivat Haaretzion when I was 18 years old uh, after my freshman year of college. And one year turned into two years of Bible and Talmud study in those amazing halls and under the tutelage of the two heads of the Yeshiva, this house of Torah and, and scripture study. And I had a transformative experience right about this time of year. Today may actually even be the anniversary of when it happened, because it happened a week after the Jewish holiday of Purim, which fell last week. And it was the year of the first Gulf War in 1991, and the war ended on Purim Day, and Scud missiles had rained down for like two months in Israel. And I find myself in a room with the head of the yeshiva, a rabbi who was a Holocaust survivor, And I asked him a following religious question, and your listeners will appreciate this because as religious people, we want to follow the laws, the religious laws. And so I asked him if he thought there was a greater religious fulfillment of commandments if I moved to Israel and settled in an unpopulated place, the Negev, the Galilee, or if I settled in a very populated place like Jerusalem or Tel Aviv, a city, would it be the same fulfillment of the biblical commandment to move to Israel? Now, mind you, I had no intention of moving to Israel at this point in time. And the rabbi answered me, He said, your question is nonsense. It's total nonsense. In a very charming way, he said it. He said, what you really need to do is move to Israel and open a factory to employ 10,000 people who will earn an honest and decent living. And I had been going to kind of 
Orthodox Jewish religious education my entire life, and never once I heard a rabbi talk about the economy or business. And not just as a spiritual imperative, but as a religious imperative and a business imperative, and that it's good business to empower other people to earn an honest and decent living and thereby grow the pie. And so at that moment, I decided to move to Israel and try to employ 10,000 people. And I came back to the States, finished college in two years. I graduated college on May 31st, 1993. I got married on June 13th and moved to Israel on August 11th in pursuit of trying to employ 10,000 people to earn honest and decent living. And uh, that's what I've been trying to do ever since. That's been like my life goal to keep doing that. So tell us how you got involved in uh, investing. Did you have an operating background first when you first moved to Israel, or did you get right in, into the world of investing? I got bad news for your listeners. I don't have a background in much of anything. They'll be <laughs> disappointed to find out that I have a degree in political science, which I think I got good grades, but I don't remember going to class that much. That's right. I do too, and Luke's a public policy guy. Maybe there's something there, right? That? Maybe there's yeah. something there. And so <laughs> the kind of background is I actually got started in political consulting. That's where I got started. And political consulting, I discovered, didn't create that many jobs, and neither did politics for what it's worth. But, you know, to be perfectly honest, I was fired. No one told me I was fired, but I was. And I was unemployed in my 20s with one child, and I couldn't find a job here in Israel, and I was an immigrant. And I started something that became a tech merchant bank. I didn't know anything about tech or banking for what it's worth. So it was like classic imposter syndrome. But I was driven. I had to create jobs. That's like, that's what I had to do. And so... That's what I did. And we started this merchant bank and the first bubble came or the bubble came in the late 90s and we all looked like geniuses. You know, that's how I started my career. And then I got recruited by a bunch of venture funds and ended up going to one and then ended up at Benchmark and then started my own uh, together with my partners. And so, you know, that's my story. I still don't know anything about technology, by the way. I struggle to read a balance sheet and an income statement, but it's been okay. <laughs> that's the truth, by the way. That's not like some false humility, it's the truth. So you sound a lot like me, except you've got twice as many kids. But on the income statement and the balance sheet side, but Luke does know how to read balance sheets and income statements. So I've surrounded myself by a lot of smart people who know. And my presumption is you've done the same. That is the secret to success. And by the way, it's the secret to happy marriage. Marry people who are better than you and you'll do much better. And they hold like a mirror up to you all the time and challenge you and keep you humble and make sure you're doing the right thing and you aspire together. And same thing is true in partnership. I've been in partnerships my entire life and my partners are all way smarter and more capable than me. They've proven that. So how have you seen just kind of the entrepreneurial environment and experience change in Israel over the last number of years? What's most different today than it was when you got started? That's a great question. And we started by selling our good companies young because it was a young ecosystem. You know, we forget Silicon Valley is like 60 years old. And so it's had enough time to kind of germinate management teams and financial sophistication and growth capital and all those things. This was only around for 25 years. And so that 25 years feels like a long time, but it isn't. And so now we're building full stack companies and that's a massive change. We said when we started Olive, my current fund, that what we really want to do is build $10 billion companies out of Israel and they should have an Israeli flag in the front of the building. And that wasn't obvious when I got started that you could even do that. I remember coming up to Haifa maybe about 10 years ago and just being incredibly impressed. Well, it felt like Silicon Valley. It felt like every single major technology, you know, it's Apple, it's Google, it's Facebook, everything as you're going up. And I remember back when I was on Wall Street, I remember Checkpoint being a big Israeli company. 
but it is out of nothing in 25 years. It's incredible. Talk to us a little bit for those who don't understand what we're talking about and haven't heard about what has happened in Israel. Give us a sense of the size and the scope and just the depth of what's coming out of Israel. Maybe, and it started out of the Israeli defense industry, correct, first? Yeah, and even still, you know, in most American places where you have a technology center, what you have is a great university, Stanford, MIT, whatever it is that produces technology people. Most of Israeli technology economy comes out of the military here, particularly a unit called 8200, another one starts with 81, and some others. And so you build an esprit de corps in these places and mutual responsibility, and then they go out as teams and start these companies. Now, they tend to have a kind of less business exposure than your average American college graduate. But you know, it's a different kind of ecosystem in that way. By the way, it's a far more loyal ecosystem in that way. People stay at companies a lot longer gotcha. uh, here. Okay, so I wanna get right into uh, the meat of what we wanna talk about with you because you've written extensively on what the Bible says about investing. You've written about what the Bible says about a lot of things. You've got two really interesting books. I wanna touch on The Vanishing Jew because that's fascinating. And the other one, of course, that really brings us to today is The Tree of Life and Prosperity. Before we get into each of those, give us an overview of your journey in learning from God's Word since you first met the rabbi who encouraged you to look at the marketplace. How would you summarize what the Torah says about business and investing and what guides you through that? So the most important insight is, do we think that Scripture is some sort of parable or do we think it's a blueprint? for how you live a life in a, an ethical nation, an ethical and moral life in service of something greater than yourself. And that's a critical part of the way I approach the Torah scriptures, which is, these are real things. In fact, when I launched my first book on Genesis in Hebrew, I did like an evening with a rabbi named Rabbi Lau, and someone asked him, what'd you learn from reading Michael's book? And he said, I learned that people haven't changed in three and 4,000 years. People are people, families are families, issues are issues, wealth is wealth, and morals and ethics, you know, are relevant today like they were then. And so I thought that was a, just a great encapsulation. And so if you think this is a blueprint, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus is the case may be, and on, you look for how to apply it. And what we've lost, I think, is a way to interpret it to our modern society. Somehow, we think when we read about, you know, Abraham and his flocks, or Isaac and his flocks and his agricultural enterprise— so we say, oh, that was then. But now we're like in technology and computers and manufacturing. But I think that's interpretable. Not only interpretable in a way of parables, but fundamentally interpretable. It's not an accident that Abraham was a shepherd and Isaac had an agricultural empire and Jacob goes back to being a shepherd and Joseph becomes the secretary of the treasury of Egypt. These are evolutionary behaviors that we see in family generational businesses and in other areas like that. And so I think it's a blueprint. One of the things that we've looked at a bunch, both with Faith Driven Entrepreneur and Faith Driven Investor, is the creation mandate and this kind of call to create. Be fruitful, multiply, take dominion over all things. I'm curious, as you've looked into this with a number of rabbis and these yeshivas, et cetera, about some of the passages that you grasp on. And I'm wondering if they're the same, presumably many of them are, but in terms of the emphasis, you know, like, you know, you go back and say, see, God has told us 
to be able to be out in the marketplace. In the Christian worldview, of course, a lot of times we'll go to the book of Acts and talk about the fact that 39 of the 40 miracles in Acts took place in the marketplace. What is it in Israel and the Jewish tradition, what is it you look back to specifically? I mean, you mentioned some of that about what Abraham and Isaac did and Joseph being in, in the treasury, etc. But do you see anything, for instance, in the Genesis story, the Exodus story, are there kind of these rallying points that you say, see, this is why we need to do this, etc.? By the way, parallel to some of the Christian teachings, so we have rabbinic literature from similar time periods. And in fact, there's a lot in rabbinic literature that takes place in the marketplace as well. And I don't think that's an accident because those are the same time periods, right? Marketplaces evolved primarily after the Romans came into our part of town here in Israel in the, call it, first century BC, right? So we have those parallels also. My focus in the books, although I do bring from some of the rabbinic literature, is really what Christian listeners would call the Old Testament, and we call right, the Hebrew Bible. And so in the creation mandate, there's a few parts of this. One is everybody works and everybody creates. If you read through the book of Genesis, you can't not notice that Noah invents the plow. I'll come back to Adam in a second, but Noah invents the plow. Abraham is a wealthy man. The word wealth or possessions is what's called a Leitwarter in German, which is a leading word in all the stories about Abraham. And Isaac creates an agricultural enterprise. And Jacob and Esau fight over inheritance, basically. Why are they fighting over inheritance? Because there's what to inherit. And there's different views of what that business is. And, you know, Jacob and his sons are in a family business and they're fighting over that, right? They go to shepherd the flocks farther away. And the whole story of the economy of Egypt is told at the end of Genesis. And I think a lot of this goes back to the beginning of Genesis. And there's different interpretations, both in Hebrew commentaries and and in Christian commentaries, to the best of my knowledge, of the story of the Garden of Eden. And, you know, man is told, go forth, be fruitful and multiply, and to exercise dominion over the land. I'm going to take a jump to the Middle Ages for a second. Maimonides, the great scholar of the Middle Ages and Jewish philosopher, doctor, and scholar of the Middle Ages, has this line that he brings from the book of Psalms, where he says that man is just a little bit less than God. In Hebrew, it's vatach ma'at me'elohim, and he's a little more limited than God. That's a very aspirational comment. It says that like God created the world, we need to continue creation. And in fact, one of my arguments in the book is that in the Garden of Eden, man created nothing because he was fed everything. I kind of equate it to universal basic income today. We got all your basic needs taken care of. You'll be indolent. And Adam in the Garden of Eden was indolent, and so he sinned. By the way, he never talked to his wife in the Garden of Eden. We only find her talking to the serpent. She had no conversations with Adam in the Garden of Eden because when we're not productive, we get bored and we sin. We get bored and we don't do the right thing, and we create nothing in God's world. And so man is expelled from the Garden of Eden, and for the first time, he creates something, which is a person. And if you read the scripture Carefully, only once man is expelled from the Garden of Eden does he have children, which is the ultimate creative act at the end of the day, the ultimate most godlike act at the end of the day. In Talmudic studies, we talk about that there are three partners in the creation of a child, man, wife, and God, right? And so it's the ultimate kind of joint creative act. And then man begins to work for a living. Now, we view it as a curse, right, that the thorns and thistles come forth and by the sweat of his brow, Man needs to till the earth and create his bread. At the same time, he creates something. And that begins the creativity of humanity. So I'd love to just on that 
Called to Create, which is the title of a book that's well-read kind of here in the U.S. that speaks to kind of why do we create? There's a great podcast that Henry and I oftentimes point entrepreneurs to and our own teammates to that's done by Simon Sinek on Start With Your Why. And just curious to kind of get your take on, you know, why do we exist? We exist to love God and love our neighbor. How does that manifest in and through the way we invest, the way we build products and services, et cetera? I'm curious to just have you unpack that in terms of, actually, let's make it personal. Why do you do what you do, Michael? I go back to being super motivated by creating 10,000 jobs. And I want to explain this for a second. It's not just creating jobs. The economy grows and enables other people to flourish when we don't think of it as a zero-sum game. And I think the biblical view of the economy is I can be successful and I should make you successful as well. That's good for me and good for you. And so why do I do what I do? Because I think a more prosperous society, economically prosperous society, creates better families, creates better marriages, creates better belief systems and more cohesive communities, and enables people to get through tough times. It builds resilience in society. And there's a level above that, which is, I say something a little radical right now, so I hope you'll excuse me. You know, there's a lot of people talking about capitalism being broken today and that there's a problem with capitalism. I think it's a little different. I think if we look at capitalism, we'll say that it's created more prosperity, more progress, more greatness for humanity than any other economic system before. But when Adam Smith talked about the invisible hand of the market, he lived at a time and lived in existence that was predicated on a religious community and society that existed where he was. So a lot of the mutual responsibility and mutual empowerment was an understood prerequisite for Adam Smith capitalism. What's happened over time is not that capitalism has gone awry, but that the underlying religious assumptions of community responsibility, of empowering the other, of loving thy neighbor as thyself, of saying, I'm going to succeed and ensure that he succeeds because he's part of my community and part of my faith. And we have aspired goals and a common code and a common language that has been undermined in the large parts of modern society where people have adopted relativist ethics and morals. And they've developed a significant amount of individuality and individualism, all of which is important, but it must, it must live alongside the imperative to empower others and create on behalf of yourself and on behalf of others. And that underlying assumption that Adam Smith built capitalism on is what has disappeared in many parts of society. And it's what I hope we can reinstate this covenant among communities and men built on often religious faith most often religious faith that brought these communities together where people saw eye to eye. If you go to synagogue every Sabbath or church every Sunday, you see people. They're an eyesight. And you know they're part of your community and you can empower them. And on that, you can build a very successful and empowering and mutually empowering capitalist society. When that erodes, it gets tougher. So your point really is that uh, it's not that the animal is no longer functional or somehow evil. It's just you've plopped that animal into a completely different operating context. And the environment now is actually not conducive to flourishing the way it once was, in part because of you know, the anonymization of community. People no longer actually recognize who is my neighbor. Is that kind of what you're getting at or no? It's, it's even, I think it's more than that. It's not that I just don't recognize who it is. We had a common code. 
there was a Judeo-Christian ethic that was a common code. And I could trust that we lived by the same code. And if I can trust that we live by the same code, you become predictable. And it's easier yeah. to do business together and work together. And I think that's an important point that gets lost in a lot of the modern dialogue. And I also, there's an expectation of me from the community that I will exist and succeed to help you, Luke, and you, Henry, succeed also, and everybody else in our community. And I think we've lost some of that, and we got to get it back. So contextualize that sort of broken state, right, that sort of once was but is not currently and maybe like put that in the context of investing. Are there things about the relationship between investor and entrepreneur that are also concurrently broken because they've been shaped by kind of this broader societal dilemma that we find ourselves living through? I've written a bunch of blog posts about investing as a transaction, investing as a relationship. And I think a lot of what goes on is become transactional and not relationship. And one of the things I love about venture capital is the opportunity to develop a long-term relationship with these founders and try to build something meaningful over time and lasting. And I did some work when I switched firms to try to see where I'd been successful, more successful and less successful investor. And one of the things I discovered was co-investors actually mattered. I didn't think they would, but they did. And I think that's because, you know, if you get to a point on a board where people are pulling in different directions because they're not predictable and they're not kind of in it for the same reasons or have the same long-term perspective, it kind of comes apart at the seams. And so the way I think about investing rests on a bunch of pillars. So one is relationships and not transactions. Two, long-term thinking versus short-term thinking. Three, what I would call virtuous alignment. And I want to dig into this for a second using an example. So I'm an investor in an insurance company called Lemonade, fastest-growing insurance company in the world. Lemonade came and looked at the world of insurance and said, this is a really odd relationship because if, God forbid, Luke or Henry got into an accident, the insurance company would make your life miserable until they paid your claim. You know, they'd send an adjuster and 500 questions. And the reason's obvious. It's a totally misaligned business. They make more money by making you miserable and not paying your claim. And not only that, even the broker is misaligned because he gets a fee for closing the deal and an ongoing fee. So he actually is not incentivized to provide full data to the insurance company. And so those forms are pretty light. But when you move it into an app and a phone, you can gather a lot of data and you align the business. Lemonade said, we're going to take a flat fee to run the pool. We're not going to make any more money by denying your claims. Not just that, leftover premiums, we'll sign what's called in Game Theory Ulysses contract, we'll tie our own hands. All leftover claims are going to charity of your choice. Charity of your choice. So if you fraudulently trump up a claim, which you do against your legacy insurance company, because you know they're going to screw you. So... You won't do it in Lemonade because, congratulations, you've screwed the American Cancer Society. And it turns out that most people are good people. They really are. Most human beings are good people. But we design systems to bring out the worst in humanity because we think of these as transactions and not relationships. We don't trust people. And this goes back to what I was saying before. We've lost the code of trust, and that we need to regain. We've lost the code of predictable behavior based on, in my view, predictable community and scripture behavior that once was a common code. And we got to get that back. So I'm fascinated by that. That's very, very interesting. We talk on the program a lot about the concept of a redemptive business model. And I love it when you just go ahead and you illustrate through an example like Lemonade. Are there other ones that come to mind as well? When you think about like- Oh, sure. I can give you many more. I'll dig into another one, which is stunning. Uh, I have a company called Rise Up that I'm invested in. A guy named Yuval Sambit, he grew up poor in a town just outside of Tel Aviv called Petach Tikva. He grew up 
right above the market. You know, we have these open air markets in Israel, if you've been here, open air fruit and vegetable markets. And, you know, he says parents would go down at three o'clock on a Friday afternoon, right? The weekend here starts Friday for the Sabbath. And, you know, before the Sabbath start, they bought all the veggies on cheap. So we'd have fresh fruits and vegetables. They didn't have money. And he said he grew up with a mindset of abundance, despite the fact that they had no money because his parents kind of taught him this mindset. And after he sold his first company to Klarna, which is the big Swedish e-commerce payments company, and lived in Sweden for three years, he said, I'm coming back to Israel to start a company that will use a day-to-day finance to teach self-efficacy and turn that into a real business. And catch this. So banks make money in the same way that insurance companies make money. They take fees on your transactions and they want you to borrow money. And ironically, they actually want you to default on a payment or two because then they get fees and penalties. And the best customer for a bank is someone who takes a loan and doesn't make all their payments, but ultimately pays it back. That's fundamentally misaligned. Came Yuval Salmon and said, using AI, we can fix this. AI and community. And he looked at Fitbit and all these people driving themselves nuts, walking upstairs in the middle of the night to hit their Fitbit number on their watch and say, the human mind optimizes around hitting a target, one number, one target. But we got to get that number right. And after a lot of research with single moms, widows, people at the kind of bottom of the socioeconomic spectrum, he discovered that the one number that mattered was how much money do I have to spend at the end of the month, from now until the end of the month. And so using technology and WhatsApp and iMessage, he plugged in your bank account, your credit card statement, your purchasing habits, and sent you one number once a week, every two days, whatever you wanted, how much money I had to spend at the end of the month. Now catch this. They've taken many, 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 many thousands of people out of overdraft and out of debt into savings and even investment. These people have opened investment accounts through this alignment. It's not only that, these are not the highest socioeconomic people in Israel to say the least. And they're paying $15 a month subscriptions to this company Rise Up because they know it gets them out of debt. And then around this is coalesced a community of 20 plus thousand people who are encouraging each other through challenges to save money and to then invest money. So much so that we did a partnership with one of the largest savings account providers in Israel. We got our clients a 50% discount on fees and they got more signups in one week than they get in a year through our customers. And this money never existed before because these people were in overdraft. Super aligned business with deep values and a deep sense of community that drives very, very rapid growth. And to put a cherry on top on the story, the kind of spokesman for the leading bank in Israel, largest bank in Israel, was like the host of like Jeopardy in Israel. And he was their spokesman of the largest bank in Israel on TV. And he called up and said, can I come represent you in a campaign? And that's like, wow. And Yuval, who, by the way, grew up secular, not religious, tells the biblical story of Elkanah from the book of Samuel. And in the book of Samuel, Elkanah leaves his home and goes to the tabernacle, the mini temple in Shiloh, which is in in Judea, just outside of the hills of Jerusalem. And he would go collect all the people from around and bring them to the tabernacle for the festivals. He was like a collector of communities to bring these people. But he led by example. And that's what Yuval talks about. We can lead by example and collect communities of people for self-efficacy and service of a greater goal. And it's a great business, by the way, an amazing business. And I just want to say this. I'm not talking about impact investing. My view is very clearly that good values and aligned businesses with the right intentionality of empowering people and helping them do better creates better, more profitable businesses. And that is a virtuous cycle. That's my view. Yeah.
And I would actually say that 100% of what you're doing is impact investing, it's just <laughs> not as the world would describe it. Yeah, you know what I mean? I, mean, I think there's actually, we've talked about this a lot internally that uh, all investing is impact investing. The question is sort of what impact do you want to have? And the reality of what you're doing is actually having a phenomenal impact, far more impact than what the world has probably described as like impact investing in the last decade. So I love it. On a personal note, I think back to the movie Chariots of Fire. So I think we're roughly about the same age. So you're likely to have watched the movie Chariots of Fire. Have you? I have. I remember it well. All right, good. So in the movie, the main character is being challenged by his sister as to whether he should go into the missions field in China or not. And he responds back that God made him fast. And when he runs, he feels God's pleasure. As you work, as you invest, tell us about the times when you feel God's pleasure. I have a confession to make. I have a difficult time personally, both answering that question and feeling it because it feels almost presumptuous for me to think that I would know exactly where God would find pleasure with me. We try to do the right thing and hope that God takes a favorable view of it. But I struggle with that, you know, in kind of having knowledge of that. I will tell you that when I grew up, there is a verse in Deuteronomy which says one shouldn't say that the strength and might of my hand or arm brought me this greatness. And when I was a kid, there was a very self-effacing view of this, which is promulgated by the great Jewish scholar Nachmanides, who lived in Spain, where he says that one should never say that I succeeded or I was successful or it's because of me that I succeeded. On the other hand, he had a student who lived a little bit after named Rabbi Nisim of Girona. Nachmanides lived in Barcelona and Rabbi Nisim lived, I don't know what it was, 50 kilometers north in Girona. He says, no, Nachmanides misunderstands the verse. And really what it means is we're all given God-given talents or genetics as the case may be. And we have talents like the runner in Chariots of Fire, the main character. And you have those. And you should say that I've taken my talents and maximized them with the right intentionality for the right service and the right aspiration. And so I relate more to that one, that interpretation of Rabbi Nisim, where you're given some talent, you got to work really, really, really hard and with the right intentions to do this in the service of the right goal. And I hope and pray that it finds pleasure in, in God's eyes. But I, I have a hard time knowing and feeling it. Maybe it's a personality hangup around that, or maybe it's you know, kind of the teachings I had from my own rabbis and my parents and my grandparents over the time. I, I'll tell you an emotional story if I can't happen today. Can I, can I do that for a second? Please, please. So I spent the morning at the Israeli president's residence this morning in a ceremony with my 98-year-old grandmother. And my 98-year-old grandmother, my grandfather of blessed memory, were friendly with the president of Israel, Chaim and Oral Herzog. They were friendly before they were president. And my grandmother, who's 98 today, even had a relationship with President Herzog's mother. And my grandparents were over at the president's residence in, sometime in the late 80s. And they saw there that the booklets for Grace After Meals, the biblical blessing we all need to make after we eat a meal, had been like collected from like weddings and bar mitzvahs. And there wasn't something kind of regal for the Israeli president. And my grandfather and grandmother said, we need to make a president's booklet for Grace After Meals that is respectful 
and respectable in the president's residence. And they did that. And I was honored 33 years ago to speak at the president's residence about this. And at the time, we talked about the importance of the blessings that we all have and and giving thanks and how it should be beautiful and, and inspiration. Well, today, the son of that original President Herzog is now the president of Israel. President Isaac Herzog is today's president. And my 98-year-old grandmother presented him with a unique booklet in his honor and for the president's residence of Grace After Meals. And so it was now two generations, but my same grandmother with this thing. And in this story, Deep, I was there. We were all emotional today. The president teared up and his wife was crying and said, my job is to cry here. And my grandmother, thank God, has hundreds of descendants. And In my view, this is like a critical piece, which is everyone talked about today that in the blessings and the grace after meals, we're thankful for all the things we have in the land and our business and our success, et cetera. And it helps remind us that it's not about us. And that's a generational teaching that I've learned from my parents and grandparents and I think is super important. That's a great word. That's a great word. One of the things that we always finish our podcast with is um, just a question on what is God teaching you recently? So I'd love to stay consistent with that and, uh, and just hear from you on that, Michael. Yeah. The thing I'm thinking about a lot is inflation. And you'll say, God teaching me about inflation? The answer is yes. I want to make an observation. Inflation hurts poor people. And we turned on government spigots to print money and cause inflation. I want to explain what I think is the scriptural and economic misstep here. And we did this because we had to keep kind of unemployment low. And so we picked up a point of employment, right? Maybe a point and a half. But what we did in return was impoverish more 33% of the wage labor population. And I think this comes from a radical misinterpretation of what our job is. And I think when we look at, as people of faith, what our job is, we need to look more broadly at humanity than the near term. We need to look more broadly at the effect of things we do than the near term. And the Bible is a work of thousands of years that is still relevant today. And that gives us a longer term perspective than let's call it the next Fed press conference and the next unemployment print. And we've lost that long termism. And I think as people of faith and people of optimism about the future, which comes hand in hand with faith, by the way, we must help others get a longer term view and an understanding of the real impact of their actions on these people. And it's a large population. And unfortunately, large numbers are statistics. Small numbers are like individual. But we got to see all the human beings in this And all these people who are working, but their money's not worth as much. And that's something that's kind of keeping me awake at night. And I think, you know, the Bible, which talks about empowering other people, whether it's through the commandment of leaving a corner of your field open for other people to collect, that's not just charity. That's empowering them to earn a decent living. They got to come work. They got to come harvest. Yeah. And if we have an expectation that people will work and harvest and earn a decent living, we don't hand them out money and we don't kind of lower the pain for the short term. We actually increase the challenge, but force the mutuality and mutual responsibility over the long term. And so that's what I'm thinking about a lot recently. That's a good word. That's a good word. It's a timely word. And another construct of reaping what we sow, we are going to reap what we have sown over the last two or three years. I'm grateful for your insights, Michael. Extraordinary, huge blessing to me. 
just being able to visit with you today and excited for our listeners here. Indeed. Thank you for being generous with your time as you get ready to go out and spend time with those Stanford MBAs. I just, uh, let's give you a quick blessing. And for all of us and all of our listeners, Heavenly Father, I just ask that you would allow us to get out there and to do the work you'd have us do, that we'd be guided by your word and by your spirit, that we'd feel your pleasure as we go about these things, that we'd see how this work matters for you as you have instructed us, encouraged us, admonished us, instructed us in your word since the beginning of time. And that indeed, this book is alive. And 4,000 years ago, these lessons apply to the way we live and act and worship. And we pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Michael, thank you for being with us. Awesome. Great gift. Thank you for having me. This was amazing. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. We are grateful for the opportunity to serve this community and see listeners come in from more than 100 countries. Faith-driven investing can be a lonely journey, but it doesn't have to be. The best way to stay connected is to join a group study with other investors looking to get the same answers to questions you have and find great community as they do so. There's no cost, no catch. In person or online, you can meet an hour a week with other peers from your backyard or the other side of the world. You can also stay connected by signing up for our monthly newsletter at faithdriveninvesting.org. This podcast wouldn't be possible without the help of many of our friends. Executive producer Justin Foreman, intro mixed and arranged by Summer Dregs, audio and editing by Richard Barley. Our theme song is Sweet Ever After by Ellie Holcomb. 